Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 192 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. By the way, I posted a link below. My guest today, Pete Martin, he did an interview with The Mandolin Cafe a few years back. So if you want to get more information on Pete, that is a great place to do it. Also brought to you by Acoustic Disc, where if you go to Acoustic Disc's website right now and sign up for their email program, man, they send you a free song every week. This past week, it was a Mike Compton and David Long tune. Uh, those are guys that have both been on the podcast, and it's from their album Stomp, which is incredible. You can get that album at Acoustic Disc. You can also get I Sample a Track. We talk a little bit about Tiny More. There's an incredible live Tiny More album on Acoustic Disc. It's three sets. It's fantastic. You can also check out David Grisman and Dandy Barnes' podcast, Acoustic Encounters. So go to AcousticDisc.com. How's everybody doing? Doing good, I hope. I'm getting ready. I'm gearing up to head up to MC the uh, Green Mountain Bluegrass Music and Roots Fest. I'm so excited. It was such a great event last year, and it looks to be the same this year. Just so many incredible mandolin players. I mean, Sam Bush is going to be there, Tim O'Brien, uh, Jake Jolliffe, Michael Daves, Peter Rowan. Uh, man, just a bunch of players. Twisted Pine. I, I, the list goes on and on. Um, I'm so excited to be there, though. Jill and John put on an incredible incredible festival so if anybody's going to be there holler i'll be there the entire weekend starting thursday through sunday and uh, also gonna stop in buffalo on monday so if anybody's got some wing recommendations that i need to do or breweries in buffalo please shoot me a message at danielpatrickmusic at yahoo.com and let me know where to get some wings um yeah so anyway really looking forward to that also, in the description below, I posted a couple links, once to a Barry Harris video, and you'll be able to find the other one that he references in that, and then also a link to MuseScore, which is a free transcription software. Um, I use it all the time now. It's fantastic stuff, and it's free. That's always great. So let's get into the sponsors this week. Peghead Nation. With Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass, you'll learn bluegrass, old-time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. Who, you ask? How about Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibus, Chad Manning, and Ian Corey. Great, great stuff. The best part about it is you can get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. There's high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Thank you, Peghead Nation. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Oh my, Adrian from Northfield just uh, did a little sampling of their, their new mandola. Whew, great stuff. So be sure to follow them on the social media. Another great social media account to follow is Tone Slabs. Tone Slabs, making slabs oh tone uh, David and Frank are just crushing it, and they always post really cool designs that they're doing for players. And you can get your own. You can get it engraved or inscribed. I'm not sure what they're calling it, but it's incredible looking. You'll know what I mean if you follow them on the Instagram. They've got all the shapes and sizes that you could ever want in a mandolin pick. I love my Tone Slab Darth Tone pick. You can get one yourself, too. Just go to toneslabs.com today. Get yourself a slab of tone. Pavel Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player. I want to send a congratulations to 20 years to Pava. She's been working with Ellis Pava and Precision Pearl. So congratulations, Pava. Here's to 20 more. String Joy Strings. They've been the rave of guitar players for a long time now, and now... The mandolin players get to rave about them, too, because they've come out with some incredible mandolin strings. And the best part about that is being a Mandolins of Beer listener, you get 10% off by using the code word MANDOLINBEER, all one word at checkout. Find out what everybody's talking about and get 10% off as well at stringjoy.com. I've been uh, leafing through the incredible Lloyd Lore book, by the way, that has been put out by Roger Siminoff at Siminoff Books. It is magnificent. So much thought and time went into it. If you are a fan of Lloyd Lore, Gibson's, just mandolins in general, just the amount of history packed into here is incredible. I'm making my way through it, and it's, just, it's, it's great. And you can get it at SiminoffBooks.com today. 
And Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new used and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. Now, in their 51st year, they're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at Elderly.com. Man, let's get into this episode with Pete Martin. Pete has been teaching for over 40 years. Really enjoyed my conversation with him. He does some great posts at Mandolin Cafe's website. If you go to the Mandolin Cafe, you're probably familiar with some of Pete's stuff. And he's a super well-rounded player. You can get his albums. He's got three albums for free at his website. He's got tons of resources for free at his website. He's also got books and teaches lessons. The link is below to go visit Pete. So go do that and have yourselves a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody. Now it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Pete Martin. Pete, how you doing? I'm really well, Daniel. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. Um, we were just talking um, before we started recording, but I've been familiar with your YouTube videos. Um, boy, I don't even know how far back. Do you have any idea? I mean, it has to be pretty close to when YouTube started becoming a big thing. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I couldn't tell you, but I know it's at least 10 years ago, if not longer than that. Um, uh, it was kind of right when I first started doing online lessons, which I know has to be well over 10 years ago. It was well before the pandemic that I was doing that. Now, did you see a big jump once that, once the pandemic, as far as getting more online people, even though you had been doing it for so long? Yeah, because I was teaching in in four music stores here as well as my house, and so all the all the local people that I had, of course, we went uh, right online. Actually, I think in the out of like uh, seventy five or so people I was teaching at that time, I think I only lost one person, um, and everybody else went online. But I already had, you know, twenty five thirty people online already so i was it was very comfortable for me it was just the people that had always been used to coming in person took them a, a short amount of time um but but the the really cool thing about the online lessons the only thing you can't do is play live with each other and so i i have people uh get play along programs like iRoll pro or something like that. Uh, some people will do band in a box. There's, you know, various other things that people will use. And, um, you know, basically part of the lessons is you play along with something so I can listen to it. So to hear how you're interacting with something else, or I get them to, you know, during between lessons, just record it and send it in to me so I can evaluate it. Um, but that, really kind of takes care of that. So you can do pretty much everything else in the lesson exactly the same. And you've been teaching, it says here, for over 40 years. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm 67. I just turned 67. And I've been teaching since I've been about, well, I think the first lessons I taught were maybe when I was like 14 or 15. Whoa. <laughs> wow, that's yeah. great, man. Yeah. And, and I've been teaching full time since uh, since I was in about my late twenties. Now, how did you get? Let's let's jump into because you're a multi instrumentalist. How did you get into the mandolin? Well, I was in a bluegrass band. Actually, I I, I started playing guitar when I was five years old, and then when I was in college, I um, I started playing five string banjo, you know, bluegrass banjo, and I got into a, a into a bluegrass band that had a much better bluegrass banjo player. This guy had been playing a long time, so he is a much better uh, banjo player. And so uh, I, I started playing guitar, and then we found a guitar player, very good singer guitar player, and she had a mandolin hanging on her wall. It was kind of funny because I had just started, got, I had just started getting into playing fiddle tunes um, 
on guitar and especially banjo. And I remember I practiced Blackberry Blossom on the banjo for two months before I could play it through, still <laughs> fairly slow, the first time and get it all clean. I picked up her mandolin, was playing it within a minute clean. And I'm just, I'm looking at the banjo, I'm looking at the mandolin, I'm looking at the banjo. And she said, you know, you can borrow that if you want. And so after spending about an hour with it, after I got home from uh, rehearsal, I'm just going, this is my instrument. Because it just made such logic, the, the fifth tuning just made such logical sense for me. And I could see that I could get all these fiddle tunes. Um, we had a really good fiddle player that had that just recorded me a big bunch of fiddle tunes. And so I was just going through those and learning them. And it's just like, wow, I don't have to move all over the fingerboard like I do on the guitar. They're nice and easy to get to. And this thing is nice. <laughs> <laughs> so from that point on, from that point on, I was just a mandolin player. I, I still play rhythm guitar and then later picked up the fiddle because I was I really got into the Texas style fiddle stuff. Uh, I go to Weezer, the National Old Time Fiddlers Contest in Idaho every year. And um, was just captivated by seeing Benny Thomason, Mark O'Connor, Dick Barrett, uh, Texas Shorty, all these just incredibly good players. And hearing just how cool and flowing, especially Benny, made these Texas-style fiddle tunes. liked complex melodies you know they weren't just they weren't just real simple kind of little uh one or two phrase tunes per part they were very fully developed and uh i mean they were very similar to, to I, I think to how you know like bebop tunes are <laughs> <laughs> right just just completely melodically developed by these wonderful, by, especially by Benny Thomason. He was the real, the real innovator of that style. Um, and I was just totally captivated by his sound. I used to follow him around with my tape recorder, just watch him like crazy. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but he was living in Washington State. So, you know... Uh, Eventually, a friend of mine that knew him uh, hired me to play guitar with him, and then I got to play several several gigs after that with Benny playing guitar. Wow, that would be that have been amazing. Yeah, he was just the nicest guy. And just I, I I was really stupid for not just showing up at his doorstep with my fill and saying, "Hey, would you show me stuff?" Because he would do that. People did that, and and he would always take them in and show them whatever they wanted. Just sit down and play with them forever. I never did that. I never took out my fiddle in front of him because I was so intimidated because he was just so good. Um, I really wish I had, but but you know after after he passed and then I really started getting into fiddle. I, I really dumped the mandolin for about fifteen years and just played fiddle. Um, then. I re I started just transcribing and learning everything of his that I could get my hands on. And I have a lot of recordings of him that friends from Texas have fed me over the years of various jam sessions and stuff. So I've, I've probably, uh, transcribed and, and learned probably at least 400 of his arrangements of things. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh yeah. Quite, quite, quite often the, the same, it's quite often the same tune. Like I bet I learned 20 different versions of Gray Eagle from him because they were all different. That was one of the really cool things I liked about him that I didn't always like about other players is Benny's versions were always different from each other of the same tune. And he was always improvising. And I was just fascinated with how he could figure out how to play all these different passages now, a lot of them were worked out, but but you could tell he would improvise 
within very limited bounds. Uh, and it was always the melody. Every time he changed it, it was always the melody. Now, he could also play very good swing fiddle. I don't think many people knew that, but he I, I heard him in a number of swing sessions at Weezer just, you know, get right in there with the very best of them and be just fine. Wow. Did you ever get to pick his brain a little bit about how he danced around those melodies and still kept it? No, I I just, I was too intimidated by by him. You know, basically I would, I would, you know, I would talk to him a little bit at the gigs and stuff, but they were usually far enough away that I would basically show up and he, he had this ability to just show up two minutes before the gig, get up there and play and then <laughs> pretty take off because as, uh, and so I really didn't get to spend a lot of time talking with him about any musical thing. And I really, I really regret that. That's why I really wish I'd just shown up at his house sometime. Did you go to school for music? Did I? Mm-hmm. No, no. I was an accounting major and, um, and I'm really actually, now that I think about it, I'm really glad I didn't. I know lots of people, especially in the jazz world. Now I meet lots of people younger than me that went to music school. And it's always been my opinion that I don't think it helps you to be a better player at all. I think you could find a good teacher and get more real world application things. If you can find somebody who plays the way you really like and get more out of that. And if they're a decent teacher, um, but I, I'm all self-taught. And so I spent that time that I would have been in music school um, just listening and learning, just analyzing things on recordings and taking them apart. So, uh, so in addition to, to all that stuff, I learned of Benny Thomason. I was, I was a gigantic Sam Bush head when I was in my late teens and early twenties. And I learned everything that I could find that he had recorded before about what, 1982 or something like this. So, uh, last count that I had, it was over 600 of his fiddle and mandolin solos. What? And I could, I, I learned them and I could play them all. That's what was real critical to me is not just learning them, practice them and play them until I could play them with the records at the speed he was doing. So I, I used to have this job taking, uh, taking change in an all night gas station. And I, when I, when I first moved to Seattle and I looked around for one that had very little business so I could spend <laughs> my whole time playing. And so I'd literally play eight hours a day. Then I would, uh, I would take the bus to downtown Seattle to catch a connecting bus to my house. And then this friend, uh, who was an, an excellent, um, finger style guitar player. I think he was, a I think he finished in the top five once or twice at Winfield in the finger style guitar, which is, is no mean feat. Believe me, that is a tough contest, Winfield. Um, and um, so we rented this place in the YMCA downtown where I would get it in the mornings and he would get it in the afternoons. It was really cheap and it was the right. It was a very isolated small room and we would, and we each used it as our practice place. And then I would take the bus home after the, or take the bus down there after, uh, um, you know, working. And then I would basically play until I fell asleep and then wake myself up and go home and sleep. <laughs> so I would probably <laughs> about two or three more hours there. So I was playing anywhere from 12 to 16 hours a day in that time. I did that for a lot of years. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about your process for transcription, because I do think it's one of those things that, I think I think people are maybe kind of intimidated by, but man, now there are so many tools. Like again, you're you're talking albums and probably cassettes that you're learning from. I mean, now you can pull up your iPhone and bring up the slow downer. Oh yeah, <laughs> look at wave files, yeah. p put markers in, loop it. You know, what was your process for transcribing? Well, when I I had a friend who had a really high quality 
reel-to-reel. And what I would do is I would get as many um, recordings. About the only thing I spent money on in, that, in those days was albums. So, especially albums that had Sam Bush. <laughs> no, li- literally, I would buy anything that I could that had him on it. Um, even if it's only one or two tunes, uh, but he he played on on such a large number of records as a sideman, in addition to the Newgrass Revival records, um, that it was actually very easy to find a bunch of stuff. So I would take all my new records, go over to uh, Al's place. Uh, we'd spend uh, we'd spend all day recording them. And putting them on his reel to reel, and then he would play them backwards and record them onto a cassette tape. Oh. And I would take the cassette tape home, and and uh, yeah, he he'd play them back at, at half speed on the the on his reel to reel, and so I could have them at half speed. But eventually, I I did enough transcribing. I I don't think people realize this. It, it's my idea from from teaching all these years and I try to get people to transcribe things on their own as much as they can but I teach totally by ear I don't give them anything written unless it's like chord forms or something like that but I just make them learn things from me playing them and I'll play them at normal speed, and then I'll play them real slow. And as the student gets better, I start to speed up the slower thing until eventually I just have them learn from the the, the full speed thing. After their ear gets experienced, then they get used to hearing. I'm, I'm a tr- uh, very big believer in the ear is just like any muscle. The more you use it, the better it gets. And you start, you start hearing more details and things when you use your ear. So that's why I have them do it because my ultimate goal, my ultimate goal when I teach someone is not to teach them to sound like me, is to give them the tools to sound the way they want to eventually when they finally discover the way they want to sound. And that's usually quite a journey is is discovering how you want to sound. I really think it takes most people a good number of years of playing before they kind of start to to lean their ear in that direction of how do I want to sound versus somebody else. Out of all those solos of Sam Bush's that you transcribed, is there one that stood out to you where you were like, this is, this is the jam. This is, I love this solo. Uh, My all time favorite one that I did of his was the Great Eagle solo on the uh, Dan Crary Ladies Fancy record. You know, I mean, I really liked the Texas fiddle things, but, you know, and so I really, I had, I had really learned that one. That was a very early one that I learned. I was probably, I'd probably learned under 50 of his solos by the time I got that record. And so I learned that entire thing. Um, and I was, that was about the time I was really, really getting big into the Texas style fiddle thing. Now, the reason I picked up the fiddle is I could play any of the arrangements of Sam, of Benny, of I did a lot of Mark O'Connor things. Those are about the only things that really gave me difficulty because they were he just had such incredible natural ability. He could play things nobody else could. I think he still probably can. Um, but I could play everybody else's things with the right amount of practice, I could play everybody else's things fairly readily. And um, I finally found that I couldn't get the things to flow the way I wanted to on the mandolin because of the pick and the frets. You have to short circuit some of the fiddle things to do that. 
And so I really wanted to be able to play those arrangements like I heard Benny, like I heard Major Franklin, uh, like I heard various other players I really liked. And I just couldn't do it on the mandolin. So that's when I dropped the fiddle or dropped the mandolin and just went to the fiddle. But that, that version of Sam's Gray Eagle on that particular recording was just, yeah, that was just as good as it gets for, for a fiddle tune on the mandolin that I'd ever heard up to that point. I love that. When you were, when you were transcribing these, were you writing them out in like notation? Were you doing it in tablature? I, no, I did it in notation because I, I had played clarinet when I was a little kid and I was never a good sight reader, but the music notation thing made total sense to me. So I always wrote it out that way because I knew what it meant. Now, if I hadn't had that background, I probably would have written it in tab. But uh, I still never read tab. I always just read notation. I wrote it out in music notation, but I would quite often, like if a measure repeated or, or, or a whole long phrase, I wouldn't write it again. I would just circle it in the previous music and draw an arrow to where it it did. So I, I had all these things that I'm sure nobody could have read it but me. Now, as soon as I did start using a computer and, and got Finale, I started writing everything on there. And I'm really glad I did because I have several thousand uh, uh, arrangements of things that I have written. And it turned out because I was teaching, these were terrific because I could use them for things. And that's actually how my books came along is is um, is just all the, the transcriptions of things I've done. Unfortunately, in the, the late 80s, when I moved from one house to another, I still have no idea where they went because I know they got to this new house. But I had boxes of these transcription books, you know, of, of just, you know, books of blank sheet music that I, you know, filled in and stuff. And I can't find them. Oh, from no. Over here. And I think maybe... Uh, Maybe the people who were in the house previous, they, they let us move in. They, they let us bring stuff to the basement about a week early. And I really kind of wonder if they didn't see a box and think it was theirs and took it with them. Uh. So I've lost all of those hand-done things. Now, I've gone back in probably about 10% of them and redone them and and use them for things when I wanted to show that to a particular student, you know, from, you know, how, how Sam was playing it from this recording or how Bill Monroe was playing it from this recording and et cetera. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, but, but I still have, if I hear it once or twice, I can still play them. If, if I can, if I can find the recording. I don't have it. <laughs> yeah. I don't have a lot of those recordings anymore. I used to lend recordings to students, and after not getting a not getting a small handful of re of things that I'll never be able to find again, I know, uh, not getting them back, I kind of quit doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Oh man, no. musicians. <laughs> yes. Well, hopefully, hopefully they got some use out of it. And you have thirteen books available on your website here. I mean, and there's all sorts of, which is going to lead me to my next question about jazz, but I mean, there's everything from easy music theory and fiddle tunes, double stops, old time tunes, one and two and bebop scales, bebop, mandolin, target notes. I mean, tons and tons of resources on your site. How did you get into jazz? I've always liked jazz. Um, my, my parents and my dad especially always liked Bob Wills and he went to see Bob Wills a number of times and it turned out it was the Billy Jack Wills band because we live out on the West Coast. Whenever Bob would come out to the West Coast and play and he played in the 50s, he played a lot in the Pacific Northwest. And so uh, I was born in Idaho and, and my dad was there. This is before he got married, but he would he would go to these dances that would have Wills. And so it would have the Billy Jack Wills band from the Sacramento area, which I'm sure Tiny Moore was in that. 
they would play these these National Guard armories, which are often in towns of five to 10,000 people, and there'd be 25,000 people there. And that they would just open up these armories in the summer and they'd play each song for half an hour to 45 minutes. And apparently he talked to a band member that said Bob would just pick out one person in the crowd. And as soon as that person had been able to rotate onto the dance floor like four times, get some dance and then rotate off, then he would stop the tune and they'd start the next one. And that they would play, they'd play basically all night long or packing onto the bus and heading to the next town. And, but, but he said it was just, it was just wild how many people were there. And he said the dance floor was always packed and these people would just rotate in and out after dancing for a few minutes and they'd rotate out, let some more people dance. And then just, it would just be kind of like a big wheel would just keep rotating. And he, uh, a friend of his had a wire recorder. And so before my dad died, he had found this little shoebox with about six or seven of these wire recordings in there that were from some of these concerts. And so he told me that and I said, wow, you know, I'd really like to have those. And so he just gave them to me. So it took me a couple of years, but I found a friend that had a wire recorder. So we went and listened to some of them and, uh, and most of them had been played so much the wires would stretch. And so they go, (laughs) you can't hear much, although you can hear, you can kind of get an idea from the sound, even among that of just kind of the energy in the room. And it's really great, but there's two spools and they're very short. They're only about two and a half to three minutes each. There's two spools that were hardly played at all. And so I was able to record those. Now I recorded them. I don't know if I ever digitized them. I think I recorded them on a cassette tape. So I'm going to have to go look and see if I can find that cassette tape and then maybe put them out. But if I find them, then I'll stick them on my YouTube channel. Oh, cool. And, and I did recognize uh, I don't know if he played any solos, but I did recognize Tiny Moore's uh, Bigsby sound off that. used to come to Weezer and I played with him a bit. It was just when I was kind of starting to play some, some early swing stuff. I had a friend who, uh, uh, was quite a lot older than me. He's been gone for a number of years, but he grew up in the same town with Jethro Burns and they were casual friends, but I think this is before Jim played, but he started playing in World War II. And, um, and, I'll never forget, he had this big Super 400 that was the loudest guitar I've ever seen. And he had the best sense, he had the best sense of swing timing as a rhythm guitar player of anybody I've ever heard. I mean, he sounded a lot like Homer Haynes. And, you know, I mean, he was that good. He, he really could play, and he just took a shine into me for some reason. And so we played all the time for a number of years. So we would, we would go over to Tiny and Dean's camp where they were staying. They usually stayed in town someplace, but they'd usually hang out at somebody's camp. Um, so we'd find out where they were staying, go over there and play the afternoon. And so I got to play Tiny's Bigsby a few times. And uh, so that's what makes me think that the sounds I heard in these, in these uh, recordings is that and while I said I didn't hear any of his solos, I got to hear him in parts with guitar players, and I could pick that mandolin sound out because it was very distinct. That uh, that Bigsby. Man, and then and then how did you get into like the bebop stuff? Because you you do a lot of like um. There's some your website, by the way, is a killer resource of stuff. I mean, people should bookmark this website because there's, I mean, just under the videos alone, you've got these uh 
jazz videos like the Barry Harris for jazz mandolin, the Parkerisms, the Charlie Parker ideas, um, jazz mandolin tips. You've got a recording of you doing Wes Montgomery tunes that's free to download on your website. It's just great. like the bop in, in the West Montgomery? Well, one of the, when I was, um, when I was, uh, when I, when I was in buying records one time, I had, I, I'd found about 10 things that CM Bush was on. I was just kind of walking by and I saw, you know, you had to walk by the jazz section to get to the, uh, to the folk music section in Tower Records at this time in Seattle. And so I, I had got the stuff and I was walking back toward the register and I saw just two records caught my eye. One was a Charlie Parker record and it was a double set that was really like the best of his uh, dial recordings, the early recordings and stuff. And I just thought, you know, I've heard that name before, but I can't place it. Maybe I'll just get this. And I was just about to turn and walk away. And there is, there is uh, a picture of Barney Kessel, uh, I mean, there was an album of Barney Kessel with a big picture of him with this guitar on the front. And I thought, you know, I've always really liked jazz guitar. I wonder if this guy's any good. So I picked <laughs> that up and walked out. And it was through listening to that Barney Kessel record, because it was just a live uh, quartet um, recording. And it was, it was uh, I think the record was called Just Friends, but Just Friends was mm -hmm. the first cut. put on that cut and I bet I played that cut a hundred times in a row before I played any of the next cut of the record because I was just so captivated by the sound he was playing and Barney was playing really good on this Barney was was you know some of the quality of especially his later records was a bit up and down but when he was good he was as good as anybody and um, this was just one where he was really on it and I just got captivated by, he's playing these, these six, seven, eight, nine minute rides and nothing boring at all. It was just one idea after the next and building these solos just in this just masterful way. Um, and so I actually think I kind of got into that more than the Charlie Parker things because the Parker recordings were still when they, they issued you know, it was mid-40s, and so those recordings were really short, and it didn't give any of them a chance to stretch. Lots of times, Parker would get one time through the solo, and everybody else would get a half time, and then they'd come back and play half the head again. So it took me a longer time to get into the Parker stuff, but I really, really like the adventuresome way of live recordings. And then from there, that just led me to, you know, start finding out about Barney. And then I found out about Wes. And of course, Wes is my, Wes is my all-time hero as far as, as jazz players go, Wes and Wynton Kelly, because they just had this, this wonderful way of playing, especially with each other. They, they did a number of recordings with each other, the smoking at the half note, the uh, um, full house recordings and just a whole bunch of live things. There is a, a record that Wes's family put out about three or four years ago called Smokin' in Seattle, where it's it's the, the uh, Wynton Kelly trio with Wes, and they're just on fire. It's just so good.
but they're they're both incredibly melodic, wonderful comping and accompanying people and stuff. And so that's still stuff I just glue my ears to. And so it's through that that I got into the bebop. And then um, I, I discovered Barry Harris uh, just happened to, to come up on a video. Uh, so Barry... Uh, Barry's from Detroit, and Detroit at that time, you know, there was a lot of great piano players that came from there. The Jones brothers, you know, Hank Jones and Elvin, and, and uh, I forget the other one's name. Um, but they, you know, th there was a long tradition of really great uh, late swing, early bop things. And Barry was as good as any of them. And uh, Barry had an incredibly organized mind. He taught from a very young age, and he had some really good, including some nationally touring players at that time that would show up to get lessons from him as a teenager. They thought that much of his playing. And then pretty much when anybody would tour and need to pick up a local rhythm section, they'd get Barry's trio to play with him. So he was already well known to the New York crowd. He moved to New York and... Uh, he played several gigs. He never recorded with Parker, but he played several gigs with them. But he he started in, I think, in the 60s doing these week-long classes where and they were just ridiculous low money. He would just, you know, have people come in and he would do like an hour and a half to two hours with uh, cording instruments. So it was guitar and piano where they just work on on courting ideas and then like two hours where it would be anybody and they'd work on single note things and then i think later he started doing like a couple hours also with singers so he did these for years and years and he he used to go to the hague or the hog however you pronounce it <laughs> and and teach classes a couple of times a year, got to be really good friends with a piano player that ran the jazz program at a university. And so there's a, there's a bunch of videos, there still are on YouTube, just search for Barry Harris in the hog. And um, there's this one, there's these two videos called Blues with the Horns, where he shows how to structure a very beboppy Parker-esque solo. And I just, I watched those and I just go, wow, this is really cool. Later I found he had, he had done a couple of books. And so I bought a couple of books. Then I happened to find the guy that had written the books with him uh, in Toronto. And so I took some private lessons from him online and he kind of really got me into it. Well, it turned out that during the, the pandemic, when Barry, of course, couldn't teach in person, he started doing these weekly workshops online and I found about, I found out about it like right after the first one, I don't remember how I found out, but so I got on the web and found out how to contact the people that were, were helping him run it. And uh, so I did these weekly classes of, you know, like four hours a week with him for maybe really up until he died. Um, when was that? I, I think it was in December, a year and a half ago. So I got to do like two full years of these, these classes and I would do both uh, the courting one and the, and the individual soloing one. And I mean, I got so much stuff, I can't even begin to almost scratch the surface of it. And so the, one of the reasons I started doing these videos is I saw that it's just, it's far and away the best organized and most logical teaching system of improvisation I've ever seen. And I've looked at a lot of them. Um, and it, I just, I just really like it. And so I've got a huge amount more videos that I'm going to be doing with of the Barry Harris method. But what it does is it basically teaches Charlie Parker and Bud Powell's kind of way of playing, which is, you know, Charlie Parker's language became the bebop language and it's still used by jazz players everywhere. Man, I love the fact that you are still 
in love with learning music? Oh, it's fascinating to me. It, it, it always has been. Um, and uh, uh, my playing has changed a lot in the last eight to 10 years that I've been looking at the Barry Harris stuff. You know, I go back and listen to some stuff before that and then listen to stuff I play now. And it's like, wow, I sound like a jazz player. <laughs> I did not say that before. I always said, I sound like someone who's trying to play jazz. <laughs> <laughs> but I, in some ways, I think I'm actually starting to sound like a jazz player. Listening to your recordings, especially the one that you just put out in, uh, I believe it was 2022. <laughs> with your expertise comes out in the multiple styles, the um, the bluegrass fiddle tunes and jazz, um, yeah. and, and their tunes that you had written. And each one, I mean, it's like listening almost to like a, uh, to, to multiple players. It's just so good. It's like, you're like a chameleon of styles. level and study multiple styles like how do you break down you know your like a routine to to keep all these things under your fingers well when i get into something i study just that style exclusively and drop all the other instruments i'm doing so um there was that period where i went through learning all the sam bush me and lynn stuff and so i did almost nothing else. I mean, I really focused on him. And, and there is a while where, you know, a lot of times in, in the Northwest, when people didn't know who I was, they would just say, oh, yeah, that guy that sounds like Sam Bush. <laughs> <laughs> because I did. I, I sounded, I didn't, I didn't ever have Sam sound. I'm not that good by any means. You know, I mean, Sam just has things I'll never have. But I, I really tried to focus on copying his sound and his lines and his way of thinking as much as possible. The, the huge benefit of when you transcribe as much stuff from one person as I have of somebody like Sam and, and Monroe and, and Parker and things like that, you learn how they think. You learn how they problem solve because you see all these examples of it. And that doesn't mean that I always choose those ways of doing things. Now I've been playing long enough that I have a much better idea of how I want to sound. Back then, I didn't. I wanted to sound like these folks. So, but it, it not only does it show you the language, it shows you a lot of the mental things that you have to do when you play. I tell this to students all the time, the better you get physically on an instrument, the more music becomes mental. And when you get to a, a fairly decent level, it gets to be much more mental than physical. It's what to do and the strategy of doing it. So actually with my best students, I spend a lot of time on those aspects of it because these folks, a lot of them, they already know how to play. Now it's okay. What can I do to make this um, flow more musically? You know, maybe to communicate musical things to people who are listening. And also sometimes, you know, I do also have a pretty large background in ergonomics because I went through uh, a number of years of overuse injuries where, uh, where I studied a lot of ergonomics. So I help a lot of people with that as well you know, just make things more efficient. I think people forget about that portion of it. 
as far as the overuse thing and, and, and potential injuries too, not just like, oh, I, you know, playing in a particular style, but you can definitely, these, these fingers and wrists are, <laughs> they get worn well, out. Well, uh, uh, I believe that this is especially true in classical music, maybe not as much in the last 10, 15 years, and definitely in the non-classical music things in the last 10 or 15 years. But a lot of technique is based around a real virtual, how a real virtuoso player did it. And you know what? It's my personal opinion. That's one of the worst things you can do because those folks have individual natural abilities born into them that the rest of us don't have. We need to figure out the most mechanically efficient ways of doing things. Yeah, that's smart. Especially like you see a guy like Sam Bush play and, you know, probably not the most mechanically efficient. It works perfectly for him, but there's a reason why he plays like that, you know? Well, you know the reason why he uses that big forearm motion, don't you? Getting his wrist busted up and then, and then having... And then having to go on the road the next day for, for quite a number of weeks with the new grass revival lease, I just put it in a cast and I'll use it like that. And I, I have heard from people who knew him, I've never seen any video proof of this or anything. And I, I don't know Sam personally, but I've heard that he used to have a really super efficient, just really easy right hand with very little motion before that happened. But yeah, you watch a video like that and you're like, oh, I want to play mandolin like this guy. And of course, everybody wants to, you know, that loves bluegrass. He's one of the best ever, you know, and then you watch that arm and you're like, whoa, <laughs> how does he do well, that? Well, <laughs> the, the, the first, uh, I got to tell you this story. The first time I ever saw him, he was playing on a, a bill where John Hartford was the, the, um, uh, the headliner. And so it was, it was on the first tour that the new Newgrass Revival had done. And I'd heard that they'd had changes, but I, I, I had never seen pictures of Bela or pictures of Pat Flynn. I definitely seen, you know, pictures of Sam and pictures of John Cowan. And anyway, we walk in and they're on stage doing a sound check, but the sound of the mains is not. And so I see this guy playing mandolin and he had cut his hair. So he looked a little different because I'd, I'd always seen the pictures of him probably in the very earlier days of the revival where he had really long hair. And so he had actually for him very short hair at that time. And so I wasn't sure it was him. And, and this is a really big club. So, you know, it was all the way across the room, uh, a very big room. And so, I couldn't see him very well. The lights on the stage weren't on, so it was fairly dark up there. And I saw this guy playing a solo and making this gigantic right arm movement while having never seen, uh, you know, videos weren't just weren't around at that time. Um, having never seen him in person, I just thought, you know, and just heard that sound. I always pictured in my mind that this has to be the most efficient right hand making this incredible sound that he gets because it's just so good. And to see this great big arm motion, I go, oh, that can't be them. That There's no way you could get the sound doing that. And two seconds later, on comes the sound to the mains. And it's just like, Holy heck, that's Sam Bush. <laughs> How does he do that? <laughs> right. <laughs> and I mean, I just stood there with my jaw just, you know, dropped toward the floor going, How in the heck does he get that sound with that technique? <laughs> What's uh, You got a couple pictures of, uh, of, of your, what I'm assuming your main instruments there. You've got an, an acoustic mandolin and an electric mandolin. What are your two main axes? Well, actually, I use four. Oh, awesome. Uh, when I play any bluegrass or fiddle tunes, I, I have a, a Gilchrist F5 from 1980. Ooh, nice. So definitely one of the earlier ones. It's a, it's a monster, monster mandolin. I've, I've had literally thousands of mandolins in my hand, 
The only thing I would trade this straight across for is John Reichman's. <laughs> <laughs> Every other one that I've played, even Lore's, I would not trade this Gill straight across for. It's really that good. And it fits the one I play. I went looking for an early Gilchrist because they always sounded like like the later 20s Fern models to me. And I, I played a lot of Lore's and I played a lot of Ferns of the later 20s. And the Ferns almost always were my favorite. You know, um, so, um, but, but that's, that's my bluegrass and mandolin for the jazz stuff. I've got a 1924 A2 that, uh, man, it's, it's a terrific mandolin. It's, uh, it was played. I'm absolutely sure it was played by somebody as a full-time gigging instrument for a lot of years. It's got a, it's got the footprint of a D. Armand pickup on it that has, you know, really worn all its way through the finish and through a number of wood and stuff, but it's really big and full sounding. Most of those, you know, they just don't get played and they're just really quiet and really dead because the top is so thick and the braces are so thick and that you've got to just beat the heck out of them for a lot of years to, to work its way through that. Um, so, and then I have two electrics. I have a Godan 8-string that I use for an acoustic plugged-in sound when I play with uh, the jazz, my jazz trio, or our jazz trio. Um, and it works really well because it sounds very acoustic plugged-in for everything but chopping. And, and yeah, of course, I'm not playing any chopping in a in a you know, in a jazz trio. So it works really, really well for that. And then for Western Swing, and then when I when I get hired, so I do get hired a fair amount to, uh, to play in ensembles with a piano that would normally have a guitar player. So, uh, so I, I have a Jonathan Mann five-string that I've modified pretty heavily. I put a, a Lawler Charlie Kristen pickup in it. Jason Lawler's probably the, the top pickup builder in the world in, in uh, electric guitar land. What about strings and picks? I use, uh, on, on all my acoustics, I use uh, Monel's. Used to, um, I've never liked the, the modern sound of these really bright zingy phosphor bronze strings, and um, started playing Monels in the early '80s. I think some of that was because I was such a big fan of Sam. And on the electric, on the uh, so I used the Monels on the Godan as well. On the um, on the Man five string electric, I really like flat wounds. Do you use the same pick when you play acoustic and electric? Yes, I didn't used to, and, and I used to use different picks on, on every instrument and for every different style I would play, but I quit doing that several years ago because that was just another thing to have to adjust. So, so one of the things I think you were asking about was, how do I think when I play one style versus another? Well, I tell this pe to, to people learning music theory all the time, there can be many different terms that describe the same sound and many different ways of arriving at the same sound. You've got to find the organization in your mind that helps you arrive there the quickest and the easiest and the most logical. Because then, when you're actually in battle, so to speak, and you need that, it gets there the most instantly with the least amount of time processing that. Because if you're in the middle of something and something complicated comes up and you need to access something in your brain to how do I solve this, you know, the more delay you have, the less chance you have of being able to, to get it. It's the old, I always call it, it's the, th if you think you stink, that's yep, my, uh, <laughs> that's what, if I think I'm going to do something, I, it usually never happens 10 seconds later. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> well, this is a, this is especially true when people are starting to play jazz, um, that, that are coming from, 
you know, especially bluegrass and old time backgrounds or other non-jazz backgrounds that are much more, you know, folk music and, and straight major and minor scale oriented. And they don't have to think about all these complicated chords and all, what, what in the heck do I play over this, uh, this minor seven flat five or this, this G seven sharp nine or this, this, you know, <laughs> you call that what? <laughs> Watch this demented chord. <laughs> <laughs> or this demolished chord. <laughs> it's a whole new world. Yes, and that's why I say, don't worry about it. <laughs> we'll get there. Just use your ear. <laughs> well, man, I've got two more questions for you here, Pete, and the... Uh, the first one I always like to ask is um, a lot of people don't have, you know, you were talking at one point you were playing eight hours at work and then going and playing a few more hours so you fell asleep and and not everybody has that much free time, you know, especially nowadays. But what is something if you just had 10 minutes to play, and I'm a firm believer, if you just do something 10 minutes a day, you're going to get better at whatever it is you're working on. You just got to keep doing it. What would you recommend somebody doing to work on to get better at mandolin in that short time? Can I answer that by telling you a little story? Absolutely. Okay, so in the 90s, uh, all those hours a day of playing and not being very efficient, because, of course, I knew nothing about ergonomics. I'm totally um, self-taught. Caught up with me, and I ended up with real severe overuse injuries in my whole left arm and hand. So after two years of finding two doctors that claimed to be performing arts doctors that were actually sports medicine doctors and really didn't know what they were talking about. They probably, after I did find a real true good performing arts doctor, she said each of those doctors probably cost me a year of playing. I, I came to the conclusion, I'm going to have to figure this out myself. Well, so I started reading everything I could get my hands on. And then I met this really wonderful doctor. Uh, this doctor was such a well uh, respected hand surgeon that when a great baseball player that played here for the Mariners, uh, Ken Griffey Jr., busted his hand up against the, the wall making a catch in the kingdom. She was the one that did the surgery. So um, anyway, for a, number, for a number of months, she didn't let me play at all. We just did these things, and I won't go into them. She did these things to teach me how to use way less muscle force. And I didn't realize it at the time, but she said, you've got to follow these. Based on you've had so many hours, you've programmed yourself to do something these this way, and I can't let you just go back to doing it. So finally, after about a year and a half or so, she let me bring in an instrument. And this time I was just playing fiddle. She said, bring in your fiddle this time. And we got into her office. She said, okay, I want you to just play something the way you normally would. And I was so surprised because she hadn't let me play anything. So anyway, she let me play. And, and then she stopped me and she made some, some things and she said, okay, I want you to start practicing really playing again, but you can only do it for five minutes at a time. You need to set a timer and do five minutes at a time. And because I'd been used to playing all these hours, it was quite often where I'd play three or four hours with no break at all, except maybe to just sip on a cup of coffee and then right back to it. Okay, in in all those years I was at that gas station, I would do that because that was really the only thing to do there. (laughs) Um, And so I said, I'll never be able to get anything done. And she said, and I follow this from now on. So every time I sit down, I set my iPhone for five minutes and I never let myself play any longer than that. She said, before you sit down, Think of what you want to accomplish in this five minutes. And it took me a while, but I found eventually, because I can't concentrate for any more than five minutes. And I really think most people can't concentrate for maybe 10 minutes or so and really, really focus. Um, I get so much more done in such a short amount of time. So... That's my advice. Set a timer, and before you push go, think to yourself, what do I want to accomplish in these five minutes? 
but it's amazing. And so I really try to get all my students to do the same thing. Now, I know not all of them do, but it's amazing the ones that have done that almost always come back to me at some point later and say, I'm just so glad you got me to do this because it's so much more efficient. I get so much more done. Now, the other thing I say, Daniel, that I think goes along with this, to me, there's a big difference between practicing and playing. Playing is just playing through things for, for the enjoyment that you get out of the instrument. Practice is to get better. Very focused on very specific things to improve something in your playing. And this is what you do when you practice. When you play, you can play for as much as you want. Or, you know, and then I tell people to break down the percentage of the times you play in practice to what gives you the joy of playing. Some people, I think that's 95% playing and 5% practice. Other people, like me, it's 100% practice because I have plenty of people to play with. I get together with every week. So that's my playing. Right, right. So, but I really enjoy getting better. So, <laughs> but you've got to figure out, I really think each, each person has to figure out what it is that makes them, that gives them the joy from the instrument that really all of us should strive for. Because if it's not, if it's not fun, why do it? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I love that. That's great advice. And then the, uh, the final question is, do you have a favorite beer? You're going to laugh at this one, but this is because, you know, when it's 95 degrees outside at a festival and you want something to drink, you don't want something too fancy because, you know, if, if I drink an IPA, then I'm going to, it's going to put me out for the rest of the day. I'm going to be asleep. So, you know, our summer beers that we drink are PBRs. Yeah, buddy. I love them. I love them for a uh, hot day festivals. They're perfect. Now, if I, if I go out, you know, like, and, uh, and eat Mexican food, I, I love a Negro Modelo. Oh yeah. Well, that's perfect. Well, Pete, your website, I'm going to put a link to it. If people want to take lessons, they should reach out to you. It has been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. And I really appreciate that you took the time to do this. This has been great. Well, thanks, Daniel. I really appreciate you reaching out. All right, there you have it. Thank you so much to Pete for doing the podcast. All that teaching experience, great at all those different styles, all that transcription. You should reach out to Pete and sign up for some lessons and definitely go to his website. There's links below. It's just filled with just so many resources. You can't even really describe it until you go over there and click on all of them. So anyway, everybody have a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody. Hope to see you all up at Green Mountain Bluegrass and Roots Music Fest.